Well, don't we have enough stories and songs about the journey, the road, the mission, the quest? Apparently not. From Homer's The Odyssey, which follows the Greek hero Odysseus on his long journey home, to, of course, Frodo on his quest to destroy the evil ring and Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, to the Mandalore as he seeks to find the home and the people of the child in Disney's The Mandalorian. I could keep on going. Even as I was thinking of these examples, the Beatles, the Long and Winding Road song came on my Spotify. We are taken with this idea of a journey, a mission, a quest, a fight for survival. As our heroes put one foot in front of the other in their mission, filled with enemies and setbacks along the way, we even map this idea of journey onto our own lives. You know, I was, I was trained by a campus ministry called Crew or Campus Crusade for Christ in college on how to share my faith with unsuspecting strangers on university campuses and on beaches. And uh, one way I was encouraged to get into non-confrontational question or conversations is to ask this question, where are you? on your faith journey, or on your spiritual journey? Corny question, yes. And yet, a lot of interesting discussion would often result from that question. For we like to think of our lives as a journey, a quest, a mission. We've been told that life is not about the destination, but about the journey. But it still begs the question, where are we going? Bilbo and Frodo weren't just going through a leisurely stroll through Middle Earth with a precious ring for kicks. The Mandalore wasn't just flying around in a spaceship with Baby Yoda for the heck of it. And what about you? Could people look at your life, your journey, and discern where you're going, what your goal and destination or purpose is? Well, to answer that question, I'd like to invite you to go on a journey with us. Michael, Mark, Neil, Jeff, and I will be your guides this summer, God willing, as we walk through the 15 Psalms of Ascent. They start in Psalm 120, and you see all the way through that little title at the top that's in the original Hebrew, a Psalm of Ascent. We will listen to songs sung by the people of Israel, most likely, as they traveled from all over Israel up to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. We will hear echoes in these psalms of Israel's journey to Jerusalem, and we will consider our journey to the heavenly Jerusalem. So I'd like to encourage you this summer to take time each week to read the upcoming psalm and pray that as we listen to Israel's songs on their journey to Jerusalem, that God would clarify for us if we are on the right path. Today begins the journey of pilgrim's praise. I'd invite you to open your Bibles and keep them open as we journey through Psalm 120 together this morning. So turn to Psalm 120. It's approximately right in the middle of your Bibles. And let's look at this first psalm of ascent. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, 
I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Lord, rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. What will he give you? And what will he do to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. What misery that I have stayed in Meshech, that I have lived among the tents of Kedar. I have dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Well, Psalm 120 doesn't kick off the journey on a very positive note. This isn't, we're going on vacation. This is going to be the best road trip ever. No. This song begins in distress, has judgment in the middle, and war at the end. But this song gets us out the door. It gets us started. And here's my main idea that we want to consider from Psalm 120 this morning. The Lord is the way through this miserable world of lies. The Lord is the way through this miserable world of lies. My prayer for us as a church, as we walk through Psalm 120, is that we will see three different aspects of the Lord that will help us on our journey. So I have three points as we begin our journey of pilgrim praise. First, the Lord, our rescue. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Lord, rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. I've entitled this sermon, A Song of Distress. Why is our pilgrim distressed? Verse 2, lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Deceitful tongue is in the singular. This is personal. The arrows of deceit from someone have lodged deep in our pilgrim, causing great distress. We don't know who the lying lips belong to or even what the deceit is. I mean, we don't even know the author of the psalm or exactly when it was written. But that's kind of the point for these psalms. Because this is a community song of lament. Everyone has known something of being burned by lies and deceit. Everyone can join in this song. We are meant to resonate with these first two verses. So what about you? Can you resonate with these first two verses? Maybe as a child, your dad called you stupid. Maybe you were ridiculed in school for your appearance or because you weren't very good at sports or a certain subject. Maybe you can still remember that time that a teacher or a coach ridiculed you in front of your friends. For some of you, verbal abuse is not in your past. Maybe you were the victim of someone's deceit and anger even this past week or month. What is so wicked about verbal abuse is that it can begin to shape our reality and our journey. When we are told that we are worthless, we can begin to believe that. And yet nothing could be more false. 
We need someone outside our situation to tell us the truth if we have been the victim of verbal abuse. And that person, as we see here in this psalm, is ultimately the Lord who provides the rescue. So suffering friend, the Lord uses friends, counselors, pastors. So I encourage you today, if you are suffering from verbal abuse, to reach out to someone, to call out. I know any of the elders here at this church would be happy, more than happy, to be a part of being the means of the Lord's answer to your cry of distress. Now, even if you aren't the victim of verbal abuse, we all have been stung by wicked words, by deceit, by slander, by lies and gossip, and it hurts. You know, a broken leg will heal, but harsh words sting deep and stay with us. So what do we do when we're weighed down by distress? Well, what is a psalm? What are we looking at? It's a song. It's a prayer. And we should sing along with the psalms, even when we're miserable. So do you sing and pray in your distress? We want to grow in doing this as a church together. We don't want to pretend as we come here into morning corporate worship that we're just happy, happy, happy all the time. I mean, what good does it do to pretend if we're on a journey? This isn't a 50-yard dash. This is a marathon. If a marathon runner pretends that he doesn't need water or that she doesn't have a sprained ankle, things aren't going to go well on the race for that runner. We need to be honest with how we're doing. So in our church, we want to be honest about our doubts, our distress, and our pain. There's an excellent little article by Carl Truman called What Do Miserable Christians Sing? We have all our pastoral residents here at the church read this article. And Carl Truman asked the question, how come in church we don't sing the psalms as much anymore? Christians have been singing these psalms in worship for thousands of years, and yet they're petering out of our worship. Let's listen to part of Carl Truman's article for why Christians have stopped singing the psalms. It's a lengthy quote, but I encourage you to listen. This is what Truman says. I have an instinctive feeling that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the psalter is taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented and broken in modern western culture these are simply not emotions which have much credibility sure people still feel these things but to admit that they are a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health wealth and happiness society and of course if one does admit to them one must neither accept them nor take any personal responsibility for them one must blame one's parents sue one's employer pop a pill or check into a clinic in order to have such dysfunctional emotions soothed and one's self-image restored. Feeling miserable and distressed now is not the way that life is supposed to be. But often it's the way life is in this broken world filled with deceit and lies. You know, Truman is not arguing that we should be masochists and embrace being miserable, nor that we shouldn't seek medical help when we are feeling distress? No, but what we should definitely do 
And how this psalm instructs us is that we should take those feelings of distress to the Lord, to call upon him for help, like this psalmist. We will see all this summer and even going into September that authentic living is taking every emotion to the Lord and trust. So as Christians, we don't pretend everything is okay, but we go to him in our distress and we ask him for rescue. You know, later in the third stanza of this song, we see that this psalm doesn't exactly resolve in a happily ever after. Maybe you noticed that as we read it earlier. But here, verse 1 gives us assurance that the Lord hears and answered. He answered. This is the confidence that we need in our distress. The Lord answered me. As the psalmist begins his journey to Jerusalem, weighed down with distress, he looks back and he remembers God's faithfulness to him. He remembers how God answered him. You know, my small group here at the church and and many of you have been praying for our brother, Ross Benskoder. As many of you know, Ross's wife, Chris, died a couple years ago and he immediately moved here to Portland from Florida after she died. Now, recently, a few weeks ago, Ross went back to Florida to pack up his old life, his house, all his memories of his life with Chris, and he knew it was going to be hard. So he asked us to pray. Ross wrote this in an email 12 days ago. He said, I love paying attention to God's providences. I'm always amazed with the good or bad, happy or sad. God is indeed making my path straight as I am knowing him in all things. You know, Ross thanked us for praying because the Lord had answered him in distress, in his distress in numerous ways. How's the Lord answered you in the past? When you have been in distress, did the Lord answer you? Maybe it would be a good use of time this afternoon to consider how the Lord answered your cries of distress. And then as we remember his faithfulness to answer, it will lead us to call out for rescue today. Isn't that what we see in verse 2? We need rescuing from the lies and deceit of this world. And our Lord God is not only a God who answers but he's a God who rescues. He rescues us from the lies and deceit of this world by exposing the lie with his truth. Did you notice that in this song, it's only in the first stanza, here in our first point, that we have the name of God. But his name will carry us to the end of this song, to the end of our journey, and to the end of our distress. Because his name is the name that is above every name. His name is not to be spoken in vain, for his name is holy. His name is powerful. His name is true. His name is the Lord. And our Lord, the covenant God, the promise-keeping God, is the one who loves the truth. It's impossible for the Lord to lie. And every one of his words brings life and hope to our souls that are weighed down by distress and misery and the lies of this world.
I think it's fitting that this journey up to Jerusalem and these next 15 Psalms of Ascent, that we have the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, rejoicing in the truth of God's word right before it. Psalm 119, 160, we're reminded that the entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. And yet, Psalm 119, filled with joy in God's word, concludes like this. I wander like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. The Lord who loves and speaks the truth made a promise to rescue his people from the lies of the serpent. And he has kept that promise. How could he not? And he has answered with a word. And that word comes in the darkness like a light. The word became flesh and it dwelt among us. We have observed his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, the pilgrim's prayer here in verses 1 and 2 has been answered. The rescue from lies has arrived. We would still be in the darkness of lies had God not sent his son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You may not think that you need rescue from the lies of this world, but but, but perhaps that's because you haven't compared what the world has to offer to the eternal glory of the truth of God in the gospel and in the person of his son. This is the Lord. He's the ancient of days. He's our rescue. And it's only in and through him that we can make our way through this miserable world of lies. But the good news is that God did not only send his son to be the rescue that we so desperately need from the lies of this world, the Lord gives an answer of judgment to the world of lies. That's what we were going to consider second. Number two, the Lord, our answer. Verses three and four. What will he give you? What will he do to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. Here, the psalmist turns from speaking to the Lord in verses 1 and 2 to speaking to his enemy in verses 3 and 4. He asks the deceitful tongue a question in verse 3. What will he, or the Lord, give you? What will he do to you, deceitful tongue? The answer, verse 4. In verse 4, we see that God isn't Santa Claus. He doesn't leave the bad little girls and boys a lump of coal in their stockings. No, it's a little more intense. The Lord will give the deceitful tongue burning coal and a warrior sharp arrows. Our pilgrim is confident in the Lord's justice. He has known some persecution along his journey. And so he takes fresh hope here that the God who answered his call in verses 1 is that... God who will also give his enemies an answer. He is confident that God will judge the wicked with exactly what they deserve, perfectly measured so that the punishment fits the crime. You know, for some of us, the idea of the Lord's brutal judgment can can cause us some anguish, some distress. Does this punishment really fit the crime? We can understand God judging, you know, murderers, but... Someone who tells a lie, deceit. But I think that's because we've rationalized the sin of lies and deceit today. We think everyone lies sometimes. Everyone deceives. No one's perfect. God understands. He'll forgive. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 
36 through 37. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. If God is just to judge careless words, how much more the deceitful tongue? Now we understand judgment for, for this, but we, we think a little white lie? Come on. Let's rewind the tape. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden and do an anatomy of deceit. The Garden was a place where there was no distress or war. The curse worms its way into paradise with a question. In Genesis 3, the cunning serpent says to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the Garden? Does the enemy of God's people and of the Lord make his grand entrance with blood and violence, a pitchfork and satanic growls? No, his question doesn't even sound that threatening, right? Here's the father of lies, and he hasn't even technically lied yet. But what the man and woman should have recognized is the forked tongue of deceit. Instead, they engage the enemy in conversation. We do the same thing today. We listen. Because what can be so harmful about a question? It's not a lie. Maybe the deceitful questions that have come to you recently sound just like this. Did God really say you shouldn't play the lottery? Did God really say that you shouldn't take a second look at that attractive stranger? Did God really say that you can't fudge just a little on your tax return? The serpent's deceit doesn't usually come to us as bold-faced lies and rebellion. I know God says that you shouldn't do this, but you should do it anyways. It'll be fun. He does that sometimes. But if that were how he usually tempted us, we wouldn't be so quick to fall into temptation. Instead, he first comes to us with questions. Doesn't God want you to be happy? Don't you want your kids to have fun and enjoy church? Do you really want them to sit through a two-hour-long service? Don't you deserve a break? Hasn't your spouse done the same thing to you even recently? Don't other Christians that you know drink like that, speak like that, watch things like that? What the enemy is doing with these questions is getting us to question the goodness of the truth of God's word. He's getting us to doubt the truth and instead turn to the lie. And it all begins with question. You know, maybe sometimes you get into conflict with a family member. It never happens to me, but maybe this is true for you. And when you are in that conflict, maybe you hear these, did God really say questions? What lies of the enemy are, are God use, is, is the enemy using to cause you to lose your temper? What lies are you hearing when you give someone the silent treatment or just judge that family member in your heart? And what are you going to do the next time that you hear these questions of deceit from the serpent? How will you respond to the deceitful tongue? Well, what does our psalmist do? What does our psalmist do in verses 3 and 4? He talks back. 
Next time you hear these questions that appeal to your flesh, your pride, your ego, your independence, your desire for more out of this life, don't listen. Talk back, like what we see in verses 3 and 4. Look here, you deceitful tongue. You know what's going to happen to you? That's right, you're going down. The Lord of armies is coming for you, sack of lies and deceit. Now, the journey to Jerusalem is filled with landmines that seek to derail us in our journey. And the enemy is so clever, he's even going to use God's word to deceive us. Consider how Job's worthless friends talked to him in his suffering. Consider how the enemy came to our Savior, Jesus, in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. And today, isn't Satan having a heyday? with the spread of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel all over the world, half-truth masquerading as the whole truth. If we're going to survive on this journey, we need a plan for how we will face the lies of the enemy. And where does it start? It starts with washing our minds in the truth exposing our hearts and our minds to the truth on a regular basis. Again, the Lord's answer to the deceitful tongue is the truth of God's word. Isn't that what Jesus did in the wilderness? Not God's word twisted, but God's word exposed and driven home through the sun. How does the Apostle Paul tell us that we will be able to resist the cosmic power of darkness on our journey of faith? What does he tell us first? He says we need to put on the belt of truth. And our last step is to take up the sword of the Spirit in our hand, which is the Word of God. Now, every one of my friends who has slacked off in going to church has fallen away from the truth. I'm sure you have friends in this camp too. They stop taking their stand on God's Word, they loosen their belts, they put their sword down on their journey. And friends, as a community of faith here, if we care about the fellow members here at Henson Baptist Church that we have covenanted with, won't we continue to encourage one another to listen to the truth of God's word, even as it's preached here every Sunday? We don't want anyone in our church family to know the judgment that we see here in verse 4, do we? Because those deceived become one with the deceivers. Those who fall away will know the judgment of burning charcoal and a warrior's arrows. So, with much grace, with much love, with much patience, reach out to those who are members of this church who have maybe drifted away, maybe particularly during the pandemic. Reach out to members and check in with them. Remind them of the truth of the word. Invite them to join us on the journey again. You know, this is not the job primarily of the staff and the elders. It's our job together. I think Ephesians 4, 12, 11 and 12 makes that clear. And as churchgoers during the week, let's not let our Bibles gather dust. The word is like our GPS on the journey. Don't turn it off. If we do, we're going to get lost. We need to wash our minds regularly in God's answer that he has given us to the lies of this world. So friends, this world of misery and deceit is not our home. Maybe we've been fooled into thinking that it is. We've gotten too comfortable in this world. But we must follow the Lord 
to her heavenly home. The lies and the deceit are coming. They probably already came to you today. They're certainly coming later today and this week. Will you use this prayer to prepare yourself? Now, the good news is that we see in Psalm 120, verses 3 and 4 here, is that God has already answered the deceit of the enemy. His judgment has already fallen on the lies of this world. Our pilgrim is confident that God will answer in judgment for all the deceit that has brought such misery to our lives. The Lord is our answer to a world filled with deceit. For God himself became the judgment that brings us peace so that we could look forward to the day when he brings all deceitful questions and lies from Satan to an end. Our pilgrim is confident that justice is on the way. For God has heard his cry, he has answered, and he will judge and expose all lies. Is God's answer to the judgment of lies your hope today? But the Lord's not only our rescue, he's not only our answer to the lies and deceit of this world, he's also our peace on our journey to this land of perfect peace. And that's what we're going to consider third and finally. Point three, the Lord, our peace. Look at verses five through seven. What misery that I've stayed in Meshech, that I've lived among the tents of Kedar. I've dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I'm for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. The original readers of our psalm would have known of Meshech and Kedar. They were far from Jerusalem and the Promised Land. Meshech was thousands of miles north from, from Palestine. Kedar was a wandering Bedouin tribe of barbaric reputation along Israel's borders. Now, these two places represent the strange and the hostile, far from the place of God. You know, today, our Meshech and Kedar could be Iran or North Korea where Christians are persecuted and put to death, where tyranny reigns. Some might think of Portland as Kadar or Meshach, but I'm not going to go down that road. Verses 5 through 7 don't contain the same resolution that we saw in verse 1. Do you see that? You know, in verse 1 we have the confidence, the Lord answered me. Or even the same confidence that we see in verse 4, the Lord will judge my enemies. This stanza seems kind of like a crash landing. Our pilgrim is for peace. There for war. Amen. Let's pray. Go home. But this stanza is not the end of our journey. It's the beginning. The psalmist realized that it's time to take up the journey to the city of Jerusalem. Literally, Jerusalem, the city of Shalom. He's miserable and full of regret that he stayed here this long. Why didn't he leave weeks ago? Living in the city of lies has been the worst. Did you notice that it's only when our pilgrim speaks, too, in verse 7, that we clearly see the contrast? He's been miserable, distressed, attacked with words, but why? Then he says it out loud. I'm for peace. The warlords are surely coming for him now, for he will not adopt their ways. He must either conform to the ways of deceit and war, or he must leave. So our singer packs his bag. He makes his way to the door. Can he do this? He says he's for peace, but it's difficult to leave home. It's all we've ever known. Now, sometimes our world of lies and deceit is like Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road. 
Cormac McCarthy in that novel says, nobody wants to be here, but nobody wants to leave. Leaving is hard, but it's necessary. Just ask Bilbo Baggins. He tells his nephew Frodo in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, it's dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You stepped onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Here in the last stanza of this psalm, we've reached the fork in the road. The most natural way, the way most people are going, is wide and broad. The enemy will disguise this road. It looks like the way of peace. But it will be peace with this world that is opposed to God. The road for those who truly love peace is narrow. It's difficult. It's filled with misery and distress. Few will find this road, but it leads to the heavenly Jerusalem, the place of peace. So which road will you take? Which road are you on? To get on the narrow road, we must look to the Lord. He rescues us from the lies of this world, and he answers the lies with his truth. When he shows us the narrow path, we must turn our backs on the world every day. We must declare that we are for peace, that this world is not our home. But how do we do that? Declaring that we are for peace in a world at war with God is called repentance. Christ's first words, John the Baptist too, incidentally, when he calls people to follow him in the Gospel of Mark are these. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. But what does it mean to repent? Eugene Peterson helps us see how repentance is the first step in our journey. In his excellent book, by the way, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a book on the Psalms of Sent. This is what Peterson says about repentance. Repentance, the first word in Christian immigration, sets us on the way to traveling in the light. It is a rejection that is also an acceptance, a leaving that develops into an arriving, a no to the world that is a yes to God. To say yes to God is to say no to the lie that we can have our best life now. Peter rebuked Jesus for choosing the road that meant suffering, misery, and death. But what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. And then he urged his disciples that if anyone wants to follow after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of Jesus will find it. To take the way of peace is to lose yourself. You must die to your love for the world and the deceits of the enemy, and you must follow the Lord on this way. And consider his way. On his journey, he had no place to lay his head. He was homeless. He knew war and lies were waiting for him in Jerusalem, the so-called city of peace. But he set his face toward that city, 
and ascended with his disciples there anyway. He had taken this journey before. Did he remember singing the Psalms of Ascent with Mary, his mother, Joseph, his family, as a child? Then he takes up this song anew with his disciples as they ascend, as they ascend to Mount Zion. One final time. He's with his friends, his brothers. I wonder, did the disciples wonder why, when Jesus led them in singing Psalm 120, that he wept? So maybe he glanced over at Judas. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus came on a young donkey. He did not come on a horse as a conqueror. He came declaring peace. But there were others lurking there in the city who wanted to do the will of the enemy who were for war. Judas came to the religious leaders with lying lips and a deceitful tongue. He betrayed his friend. He placed the knife in his rabbi's back. Or should we say, the arrows, the burning charcoal on his head. False testimonies had him convicted in a kangaroo court, and then his journey led up to the place of the skull. And then all saw this one who is for peace, lifted up in misery, in the deepest distress, on a wooden cross. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquity. The punishment that brought us Peace was upon him, and by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. There's no journey to Jerusalem without going through Golgotha. The cross is our crossroads. We are lost sheep. We are easily deceived by the enemy. But the Lord rescues us. He answers with judgment on the man of peace. And then he becomes our peace. So that we might journey to the place of peace to and through him at the cross. It's the only way. We don't have to stay in Meshach and Kadar any longer. They may throw great parties now, but they are cities doomed for destruction. We must be like Christian in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. We need to run away with our fingers and our ears, yelling, life, life, eternal life, as we run toward the cross, the only way to peace. But don't misunderstand me. Leaving Meshach and Kadar is not a decision to homeschool or move to Idaho. It's not a one-time decision that you make on an emotional high at a Christian summer camp or in the pew of a Baptist church like this one. The decision to leave Meshach and Kadar is a daily decision. It's reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel and that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. It's a path of joy amid misery and distress because it's the way of the cross. This is the way to the land of peace and perfect rest where distress and misery will be memories long forgotten. 
course, making this decision, this daily decision to reject the lies of this world for the way of peace through Christ. It's not a solo climb. It's not private. Psalm 120 was to be prayed and sung in community. Israel ascended to Jerusalem together. They encouraged one another along the way. They helped the elderly. They came alongside the children. They encouraged the weak and the tired. They laughed together. They mourned together. And they sang. Who's helping you in your journey to the heavenly Jerusalem? Who are you helping when you see someone stumble? When you see a church member start to go off the path because they're, asked, they're listening to the question, did God really say? Do you call them back to the truth and love? So why so many stories? Why so many songs and poems about the journey, about the quest, the mission? Well, we're all travelers here. But where are we going? That depends. Who's leading you? Who are you listening to? You can tell where you're going by who you're listening to. Only those who continue to listen to his voice will recognize the siren songs of this world and will tie themselves to the mast of God's truth. So declare that you are for peace in Christ today. When you walk out of the doors of this building and you take the road back to your home, don't get too comfortable. For God is calling us to take the way of a son. It will be miserable at times. But it's the only way of rescue from our sin. And Jesus tells us in John 14 not to be troubled. For the Lord himself has answered our cry for help already. You know, in our own strength, if we look inside ourselves, we are too weak to set out on this journey. We are too tired. We're worn down. But he has said that he will deliver us safely to that golden shore. Even in our distress and misery, let's take comfort in the Lord this morning. He is able, he is willing, and he is ours forevermore. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess that often our hearts are troubled. They are troubled because of the ways that people have sinned against us. They are troubled because of our own sin, our own weakness, our own failings. We wonder, how could you love us? But Lord, we thank you that you tell us not to let our hearts be troubled, but to believe in you, to believe in your Son, and to know that, Father, in your house there are many rooms, and that you prepare a place for us. And that you will lead us and carry us. And you have sent your spirit so that we might be strengthened to take up the journey. Lord, for, for those of us this morning who have not set out on that journey, Lord, we pray for clarity, for wisdom, for truth for these friends. That they might turn from their sin and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we pray for those who have wandered from the path, 
and have believed the lies and the deceit of the enemy. We pray that you would bring them back. We pray for all of us that we would be faithful in the faithfulness that you provide. Lord, you know the way that we are going. And we pray that you would strengthen us on that way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.